Acts chapter 17, let's take a look at our text together. And now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned, these men who have turned the, up, the, the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Let's pray. Jesus, we ask that as we look into your word, that you would just um, help us to understand what is being communicated here, what is being revealed. And Lord, we, we see this account of these men, these missionaries that are fully engaged in the mission of God and are seeking to make a difference in this world by reaching people. And Lord, we just pray that we would see in them a great example for us to follow. We pray that as we see this narrative unfold, that there would be lessons that we can learn and things that we can glean. And Jesus, we just ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, work right now in this room. I pray that the, uh, the ability of this message to connect with, pe with people would supersede my ability to articulate and Lord, we just ask for your Holy Spirit to work on hearts, that you would challenge us and that you would stir us up to know in a greater way what it means to know you and to follow you. In your name we pray, amen. Uh, Do you guys hear of what happened yesterday at that marathon in Italy? Sean, you didn't, you, you run. You don't know what happened yesterday in Italy? What is going on, man? You're so fired. Yesterday, you'll appreciate this, buddy. With a time of two hours and 25 seconds, it was the fastest marathon ever run, more than two and a half minutes faster than the official world record. This happened just yesterday in Italy. And now, I know a few people that run marathons. Sean is one of them. Is it marathons or half marathons? Half. He says as his shoulders shrug in shame. Uh, but I, I know a few people that run, and specifically those that are, are uh, those, one, those people that run marathons, I call them weirdos. Uh, I, I, I don't get it. I don't get it at all. Uh, when I was younger, I was very active. I, I played a lot of sports, and uh, I, I, I did a lot of things. I think the closest I ever came to why well, I wouldn't really call it running a marathon, it was running. I used to like, to, I used to like run trails a lot. Um, but it wasn't even close to, to running marathons. So I can't relate to this at all. But um, as from just talking to people, because I'm, I'm, struck, by, I'm struck with uh, curiosity and fascination at people who would run a, a marathon and at that length of distance. 
And I've, I've, from time to time, like, what, what is in your head? Like, why would you want to do this? And what I've found, and I've never met, and I don't know, actually, actually, that's not true. I was going to say I don't know any world-class runners, but I actually just realized that I do. Anyway, but whatever, I'm not talking about him. Uh, I'm talking about normal people uh, who run marathons. But most of the time, their goal is just to persevere, press on, and finish the race. That's all they want to do. They just, I just want to finish and get the blue ribbon or whatever they give everyone that completes the race. But that's, that's the goal. And I forget whether it was... Um, uh, the LA Marathon, or one, one of the, the local marathons in Southern California, um, I think it was in Southern California. Anyway, I, I, I saw news footage of, of people who, who were still running, technically walking, uh, but still on the course seeking to complete the course well after the race had already been done. The roads had already been opened up and all the barriers and all that had been put away by the city of LA and and, or by the, whatever local government it was. And, but there were people that were still plodding along on the sidewalks trying to finish the course. And uh, as, we, as we sort of look at this tenacity and this determination that is exemplified in people that run marathons, we look at people like Paul and Silas, and they are sort of mission marathoners. No matter what is going on and no matter what they encounter, their whole thing is, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep going. And... Um, if you remember, as we've looked at in recent weeks, they've just spent some time in Philippi. They roll into Philippi, um, and they, they, they do what they always do. They, they roll into Philippi, they preach the gospel, and things happen. People come to know Jesus, lives are changed, lives are transformed, and a lot of good things are happening. And then, uh, inevitably, persecution rises up. And they get busted, and some other things happen. I don't want to get into it too much, but some things go on. They ended up getting attacked by a mob. They get beaten with rods and thrown in jail. And then God miraculously delivers them. More people get saved, and they get released from jail. And then they spend a little bit of time with their fellow Christians in Philippi. Not too long, but uh, as they get released from jail, they hang out with the brothers. The text says that they encourage them, and then they, they depart, and they take off. And so that's where we sort of pick up the story here because now they're headed to uh, Thessalonica. Now, Thessalonica, it was the uh, capital city in the Roman province of Macedonia. And, it was, and so because of that, it was the center for Roman administration and government. It was a flourishing commercial center. Uh, the most significant seaport was located in Thessalonica. That was the most significant seaport in, the, in, uh, in Macedonia was located there in, in Thessalonica. It was situated along the Via Ignatia or the Ignatian Way, which is a, a major trade route that ran, that ran east-west through that region of, of Macedonia. And, um, and this is the road that uh, Paul and Silas and their traveling buddies took from Philippi on down through Amphipolis and Apollonia to reach Thessalonica. Thessalonica. You have to excuse me. These are a lot of big words. My daughter was a little sidebar. My daughter was looking over my shoulder yesterday as I was reading through some of these passages, and she saw the names of these cities. She's like, "Whoa, those are some big words. They absolutely are." I asked her to pray for me so I could pronounce them properly. But as they're making their way, the text almost makes it sound like this was a, a pleasant afternoon stroll. But what 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 the Bible sort of gives us this picture of, uh, of an easy stroll, was actually a 100-mile journey. It was 100 miles between Philippi and Thessalonica. And 
um, it, it's, it's very likely that they actually would have walked it. And so to give you an idea of how far 100 miles is, um, that's basically, I actually charted it out today. If you were to leave this location right here and drive south along the 405, which the, then becomes the 5, and landed in downtown Carlsbad, that's 99 miles. So that's how far. Imagine walking from here to Carlsbad. That's how far these guys had to walk from Philippi to Thessalonica. And keep in mind, keep in mind what had happened to them in, in Philippi. They had been beaten with sticks. Now, we're not just talking about a few bumps and bruises. They were beaten with sticks, which tend to cause cuts and lacerations and open wounds. And even as the, the text reveals in the previous section there, it talks about after they were delivered and released from prison, that the, that the jailer that had been keeping them there, um, who ended up coming to Christ through their testimony, he treated their wounds and washed their wounds. And so they have been through quite a bit physically here. They have been beaten uh, quite severely. And so imagine what it would have been like to be in that kind of physical condition where a mob has just attacked them and beaten them with rods, and now they're going to walk 100 miles. They're going to walk from here to Carlsbad, a distance like that. That's crazy. And so I wonder if at any point as they're going down the road, if they, if they asked each other, what are we doing? What is going on? This is, we're crazy, right, for doing this? Because here we are headed to the next city. And I'm sure they wondered what their reception would be like in Thessalonica. And they make, they make their way through these other cities, these other two cities that are mentioned in the text. These were less significant cities culturally and in that region. And as was Paul's custom, he's seeking to reach city centers because it's within these uh, major cities and these city centers that, uh, that the whole regions could be reached. And so they're, they're making their way to Thessalonica, beat to a pulp, a complete mess. And even if, as they're walking along, um, um, even if the, the constant pain that they were in was not a reminder enough of what had happened to them, as they're walking along and they're turning to one another to engage in conversation, they have the visual reminder of the physical beatings that they endured. You know, they could be walking along and doing their thing and, and then sort of look, look up at their buddies and say, oh yeah, right, that's what happened. I don't know if you've ever um, uh, gone through any kind of physical... Uh, difficult physical condition or anything like that, but I've been through a few things, and, and sometimes it just becomes the norm, and you don't even really think about it, and there's, from time to time, and, and I've had some pretty bad back problems, and there's times where I, I'm, I'm in physical pain, and I'm not really thinking about it very much, but then I look in the mirror, and I realize that I'm actually kind of standing like this, and it's not until I look in the mirror that I'm reminded of that. So here they are, they have this physical reminder, the pain that they're in from this physical beating that they encounter. They're looking at one another as they engage in conversation, this reminder of all that they have just been through. And, and they have, at minimum, three days. That, that's at a pretty good pace. If, we don't know for sure how long it took them, but if it took them at least, it would be a minimum of three days for them to process and discuss together what happened in Philippi and what may or may not await them in Thessalonica. But to be in this kind of a physical condition, it's not a fun way to travel, obviously. Uh, that's assuming that traveling is even fun, especially these days, you know, especially if you fly United, you know, things can tend to happen. 
But it, it almost seems like, doesn't it seem like every week something happens? Someone's got a cell phone and someone's getting booted from a flight. And along with that cell phone footage comes a pretty hefty payday eventually, I'm sure, for a lot of these people. But it seems like there's always kinds of, some kind of drama going on. And I fly, uh, I fly several times a year and nothing like that has ever happened to me. But when I fly, I, I, tip, I typically only go, I'm usually only gone for a few days at a time. And I, I, I pack pretty lightly. I usually just bring a small bag and that's it. And, but even though I don't have a lot of bags with me, uh, I tend to, my, my tendency is to sort of forget things and I forget to pack what I should be packing. And so if I was smart, I would um, create a checklist of things to pack, like, you know, to make sure, like, do I have my toothbrush? Do I have my toothpaste? Do I have, you know, I have extra clothes? Do I have, a, you know, a cell phone charger? Because that's what you always forget, right? You always forget that stupid charger and then you need to go buy one or snag one from somebody else or whatever. And, 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 um, but if you're Paul, and if you're Paul, and this is typically what goes on when you travel and you tend to, to get beat up whenever you go everywhere, I mean, I mean, one good thing for Paul to pack is to make sure that he's got Chuck Norris along with him to be his personal bodyguard. And if he's not going to take Chuck Norris around with him, he should at least be sure to put on his checklist to bring a doctor with him, right? Because everywhere he goes, he gets the crap beat out of him. So, um, but here's the good news. Paul did. He actually had a doctor traveling with him. We saw in recent weeks about how uh, the, the, main, the main characters identified in the narrative are Paul and Silas, the, the two main characters, but we also know that they were also traveling with um, a young man named Timothy, and they're also traveling with Luke. And Luke, uh, we know, was actually a physician. And so, um, no doubt, um, if Luke's skills are, and his experience are coming into play, and it's a great benefit. Paul gets beat up again, and, and Luke can attend to his wounds, and Luke's like, all right, here we go again, uh, attending to the wounds of Paul. But, um, so anyway, so they're making their way into Thessalonica, and when they get there, obviously, they're not concerned with their own comfort. They're driven by the mission of God. They have this calling and this commission that they've received by God that has taken them into Philippi where they experienced what they experienced. And their takeaway from what they experienced in Philippi was not like, oh, we must be out of the, out of, outside of the will of God and clearly this was the wrong choice. That's not their takeaway. They just realize, and we know that this was Paul's perspective as recorded elsewhere in Scripture, that he considered it an honor to suffer for the sake of Jesus. So they're not that actually concerned about what will happen in Thessalonica, although I'm sure they considered what might happen as they roll into town. So they do roll into town, and, and the text uh, talks about how, um, as was Paul's custom, they make their way to the synagogue. And this is very typical of Paul to first go to the local synagogue. He was a Jewish person, and he always goes to, and his passion is that the Jewish people would come to know Jesus. And so even though he's in the city of Thessalonica, he goes to the local synagogue to, to, to first preach to his own people. And the text reveals there in verse 2, that he reasoned with them from the scriptures. And then also in verse 3, explaining and proving. So he's giving evidence um, in this dialogue, in this exchange, that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from, a de- from the dead. And, and he's proclaiming that this Jesus, he says that, that I proclaim to you is the Christ or the anointed one, the implication being that he's the Messiah. Now, this was not a message that, the, the Jewish people would have been always ready to hear. 
In the Jewish mind, there would have been no category for a Messiah that would suffer and die because anyone that had proclaimed for themselves or identified themselves to be the Messiah, and there were several throughout history, they would, something would happen and they would die and the Jewish people would move on with their lives and rack them up to, yet again, here is someone who claimed to be the Messiah and that he died. And the part that this was sort of a miscue for them is that the whole concept of a suffering Messiah that passages like Isaiah 53 talk about, this, this can't be our Messiah because our Messiah is going to come in power and our Messiah is going to come and set up his kingdom and he's going to free us from this um, occupation that we're suffering under Rome. But as Paul was saying, it's not just that he was a suffering Messiah, but that he rose again. And the Jews were jealous. They were unable to, to win over, or they were unable to, to win against the power of the scriptures and the logic of the Apostle Paul. And, and they are jealous, and they have this reaction because Paul and Silas' ministry was bearing fruit. And the, the, as a result of that, the pettiness and the lawlessness of the hearts of these Jewish people is revealed. They weren't going to stand for this. They were not okay that this was taking place, and so they needed to shut Paul and Silas down. And so it says there in the text in verse 5, taking some men, some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. Now, these wicked men are, were men that were basically loafers. They were deadbeats. They were degenerates. They would be people that would be hanging around and loafing around in the marketplace looking for trouble. And there's, there's no indication that these particular men were even Jewish. And there's no indication that they were even offended at the message of Paul or even aware of the message of Paul. But they were happy to oblige anyway. These were people that were looking for trouble. And this sounded like a good time to them or good time for them. So they set the city in an uproar and they attacked the house of Jason. We see that in verse 5, and the implication being, and we're led to believe from that as they attacked the house of Jason, that this was where Paul and his traveling companions were staying there in Thessalonica. And, and this would have been a very troubling scene and very upsetting scene, obviously. Just imagine you're hanging out in Jason's house, and whether you're Jason or one of his buddies that's there at the house, and all of a sudden you hear some noise coming up the street, and you look out the window and you see a mob assembled. And I don't know if it was the middle of the night, I don't know if it was during the daytime, I don't know what it was, but there's this mob that is encroaching upon the house and making their way to the house. And you can see by the look on their faces that they're up to no good, and they're yelling and screaming, and I don't know if they had like torches, but I want to believe that they did, because that's more scary. And the mob is descending onto the house. And I don't know about you, but I would have been completely freaking out um, and we don't really know what their response is, but imagine what a scary situation this is. Um, uh, last, last November, um, it was my birthday, so make a note of that for next November if anyone wants to give me gifts. Uh, but my birthday is, uh, was in November, as it is every year, and uh, my wife is amazing, and she took me to my favorite restaurant in L.A., uh, sushi restaurant, and this is how much this is how amazing she is, and this is how much she loves me. She hates fish. She won't eat fish. Nothing in the sea. She'll watch something on National Geographic, uh, and she'll see a fish underwater, and she freaks out. Like she, she's not into fish. They, they. She says it makes her brain itch just thinking about it. So she should probably go to the doctor and get that checked out. I don't know, but she hates seafood of all types. Anything from the sea, no bueno for her. But she loves me. 
and wanted to honor me and do something nice for me, which I was so grateful for, and she took me to my favorite restaurant called Takami. Now, you probably need to make a note of this. Someone's nodding back here. That's great. Takami downtown is the most amazing sushi I have ever had. It's T-A-K-A-M-I. That's how you spell it, so you can look it up. But Takami is amazing. It's on uh, uh, 21st floor? 21st floor of a high-rise downtown. They, it's like, kind of like this open-air thing going on where they remove the windows. I don't know how they do that. But anyway, so it's this open-air thing. You're in the midst of all the high-rises, and, and it's, a, it's a great experience, but the food is absolutely amazing. And we were there, and um, when we, we enjoyed uh, an incredible meal, at least I did, um, I think my wife got the uh, chicken or something. I don't remember what it was. Um, so we were, we were leaving after I ate two of my favorite rolls called the 21st roll. That's recommendation. And um, we were leaving, and we thought, man, oh, we got to go to the ATM to grab some cash for the babysitter. So we leave, and we used to, when we first moved to Los Angeles, we lived downtown. We love downtown. I mean, God calls us the west side. We're all about that. But if I'm going to go to any other part of L.A., downtown is the place I want to be and the place I like to visit. And uh, so we're walking around just enjoying it um, and, and the sights, the smells, all of it. And we're looking for an ATM. And we come across a 7-Eleven on the corner, and there's an ATM in there. And so, okay, fine, we're going to grab some cash, and then we're just going to... Um, you know, head home and, you know, pay the babysitter. So figured we'd just be in the 7-Eleven for just a couple minutes, so I fired up my Uber app, called the car, and was in 7-Eleven for two minutes, got some cash. Of course, um, it only spits out 20s, and I didn't want to overpay the babysitter, so um, wouldn't want to do something like that. And anyway, whatever. I bought a pack of gum as well. Anyway, we step out of 7-Eleven, and just as we step out, I hear a noise. And I turn to my right, and I see a couple hundred people descending, or maybe, I don't know if there was, I don't know if they were coming down. They're coming up, maybe, the street. A couple hundred people, and they were pretty upset. And they were yelling and screaming, and they had signs, and something was going on. And it was a pretty scary moment. Because all I know is that there's this mob descending onto this block, and I don't know what is going on. I don't know what they're up to. I was, it was all kind of a blur. I was sort of turning my ear to hear, waiting for the sound of broken glass. I have no idea what is really going on. I'm with my wife. I don't want to be in that situation with my wife because then she'll have to protect me and that would really suck. And this mob is coming. And it was a very scary moment. And right then, and the cops, the cops were there, but they weren't like uh, trying to contain this crowd at all. Uh, they were just trying to like clear the street ahead of this this crowd, these protesters. And right then, the Uber car pulls up, and he pulls up, and he rolls down his window, and he's yelling and screaming at us, "Come on, come on, get in the car!" And uh, so we jump in the car, and then the cop a uh, cop pulls up behind us, and he's blasting his siren, and they, you know, get out of here, get out of here. And we get out of there, and it's right when I get into the car, I realize what's going on. It's like, oh yeah, the election was yesterday. And there were a lot of people that were kind of pissed off about the, the results of the election. And so um, that is my experience with a crazy mob. I actually have a few others, so I can talk to you about that later if you want. But um, I was scared in seeing this mob descending. And no doubt, Jason and his buddies were again. So the, the mob comes in, and they, 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 they grab them, and they drag them out. 
into the street, and um, there they, they, we see that uh, they're, they're looking for, for Paul and Silas, but Paul and Silas aren't there, so they grab Jason and his buddies, and, and, uh, and um, because, as I mentioned, that the mob was made up of elements that uh, may not even have been Jewish or even cared about the offense that they caused the preaching of the gospel, there's elements of this mob that are even may not even have been aware of what is even going on or why they're even looking for Paul and Silas. And it even reminds me of that night because when we got home, we actually turned on the news to find out what was going on and because we almost made the news. And uh, I find out, okay, this is what's going on and it wasn't as crazy as a mob as, they, as, as it may have appeared to me in the moment. Um, but there was a reporter that was walking along with these protesters and the reporter is walking along interviewing people along the way and asking people their thoughts and why they're doing what they're doing and what are they all for and what are they about and what are they representing. And, and some of the people that the reporter was talking to had no idea what they were doing and had no strong opinions or thoughts about Trump or the election. They just they got swept up in what was going on. And so that's even what we're seeing here is that we have this, the elements of this mob that really are very disconnected from what's going on, but yet they are part of this. And they drag Jason and some of the brothers before the authorities, it says in verse 6. And once again, I'm, I'm wondering and trying to picture what's going through Jason's mind because if Paul was staying with Jason, no doubt Jason has had the opportunity to see the physical effects and the souvenirs that Paul and Silas had brought with them due to the beating they suffered in Philippi. And so now this mob has descended on his house. They've been dragged out. And Jason and his buddies, like, man, they might be thinking, is this going to happen to us too? Are we going to get a beating like Paul and Silas did? Are we going to be thrown in jail like Paul and Silas were? Or would it even be something worse? Would we, would we maybe even meet our death? And the mob is shouting at them and making these accusations and, and saying, uh, that they and accuses them of turning the world upside down. And somebody told me I should insert a reference to Stranger Things here. You're welcome. Never seen it, don't even know what I'm talking about. Moving on. But they're accused of turning the world upside down and wanting to do the same in Thessalonica. Also, they, they are accused of acting against the decrees of Caesar saying that there's another king, Jesus. And I find their accusation very uh, interesting because they're charging them with turning the world upside down, and which is really evidence that their ministry was making an impact. And so obviously the people have noted the effects and the power of the gospel to bring change. And what a great thing to be accused of, that uh, the ministry of the gospel that you've been able to be a part of is something that is turning the world upside down. What a great thing to be accused of for the sake of the gospel. Some people live their lives in such a way that the world doesn't even know that they exist, and they have no effect on anything, yet trouble for a good cause is following Paul and Silas. And they're accused of turning the world upside down, but I would actually suggest that the world was and is already upside down. And back in the Garden of Eden, we see that the serpent, we see what the serpent did uh, with what God said. Uh, he twisted it, he distorted it, he turned it upside down, he provided a counterfeit in order to deceive Eve, and the world has been upside down ever since. And you might, you might say, you know, that you don't believe in the gospel, you don't believe in the Bible as I do, therefore you don't share my 
my biblical assessment that the world is actually upside down. And, and, and okay, you, you don't have to believe that right now in this moment if you don't want, but I would ask, I would ask you to consider how you might explain the condition of the world then because you have to admit that things aren't awesome, right? The world is a bit of a mess. And any argument that the world is not upside down or whatever you want to call it is a little bit intellectually dishonest with racism, exploitation, crime, victimization, greed, violence, terrorism, war. Who would make such a case that the world is fine as it is? So there they are, turning the world upside down, or were they turning the world right side up? Because when you turn something upside down that is already upside down, you really turn it right side up. And the ways of the upside down world stand in contrast to the way of Jesus. And this makes the message of Jesus subversive in an upside down world. And the mob apparently recognizes the, subver- sub- the, the subversive nature of the gospel and, because the world has a, is a pattern of values that is disrupted by the impact and the power of the gospel. The gospel brings change and transformation. The proof of that is the radical transformation that we see in people's lives after becoming a follower of Christ. As the gospel has impacted them, they abandon their previous ways of living. Now, sometimes when people share their stories about how they came to know Jesus, they feel a little bit uh, you know, embarrassed that they don't have this crazy story about they, how they used to be you know, uh, a pimp or a drug addict or whatever, and God rescued them from this, this horrible life. But in some cases, we see radical transformation happening where there's, a, there's a, a, a contrast of a previous way of living and now a new way of living. But even if someone has come to know Jesus at a younger age and didn't have time to, you know, become a pimp or whatever it might be, we still see the power of the gospel at work because they have become people that have been influenced and, 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 and they've become people that are informed by the power of the gospel because the way that they live their lives is, does not make sense in light of the upside down world. So whether someone has a, a crazy story or not, even and if you're one of those people, you think, man, I've got a boring story, your life is still a testimony and a testament to the power of the gospel because you know Jesus and God has given you a new spirit and a new life and you have a new capacity to take your delight in God and to glorify God with your life. But even Paul himself was, speaking of radical transformations, he was exhibit A, if we're going to talk about that. He was once a persecutor of Christians, and, and, and he was now a, a great defender of Christianity and an amazing evangelist, and God was using, using him mightily. We see that. And they were also accused of, of acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And in light of that, I would say that, that the message was getting across because they're starting to realize that, that the, really, the reality is and the message of the gospel is that we serve a king that is not an earthly king. And there is this, this other king named Jesus. But what were the decrees of Caesar that is their problem here? What are they complaining about? What were these decrees of Caesar? Now, we don't really know, but historically we have a few examples that we could look to. And a professor and scholar, Edwin A. Judge, who extensively studied early Christianity and its Roman um, uh, in its Roman, Roman era setting, cites this example as evidence of an oath of loyalty to Caesar. Check this out. 
I swear that I will support Caesar Augustus, his children and descendants throughout my life in word, deed, and thought that in whatsoever concerns them, I will spare neither body nor soul, not life nor children, that, whatever, that whenever I see or hear of anything being said, planned, or done against them, I will report it. And whomsoever they regard as enemies, I will attack and pursue with arms and the sword by land and by sea. That was an oath of loyalty to Caesar. And in proclaiming Jesus as king, we see that there's, there's this confrontation that is now being set up between uh, the rule and reign of Caesar and the rule and reign of Jesus. And so therefore, the message of the gospel is very subversive in an upside-down world. Jesus, of course, was not coming to overthrow and actually overthrow Caesar and set up his kingdom as his kingdom was, was one of another sort. But this is this other point of conflict. And the Roman emperors uh, had begun to be worshipped as gods themselves, but the early Christians refused to give Caesar the honor that belonged to Jesus alone. They believed that Caesar needed to be sort of put in his place under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And I thought that, I came across this this week, author Trevin Wax had some interesting things uh, in the way that he described the, the, the mindset of these early Christians. And he says this, Caesar was not threatened by Christian missionaries telling people they needed a personal savior one who will come to live in their hearts. He was threatened by a subversive community who believed that a Jewish Messiah had been physically raised from the dead who was then living according to the new reality that his resurrection had inaugurated. And then he goes on to say, Though they certainly would have agreed that Jesus was their personal Lord and Savior, the essence of their gospel proclamation centered on Jesus as the Lord of all, not just Lord of their hearts, but of the whole world. The gospel message was less about people inviting Jesus into their hearts and more about people being invited into the kingdom community that represents God's heart for the world. It's beautiful. It's, it, it's a paradigm-shifting thing. So that's why the message of Jesus is subversive in this upside-down world, as the gospel creates a new community of people to engage the upside-down world, to proclaim Jesus as king and live like it. Because it's not enough to believe in it intellectually or believe in it theologically, but to actually live in light of this new reality is something that can be incredibly powerful. And if the message of Jesus is subversive in an upside-down world, then naturally the message of Jesus will also be divisive. Divisive in the sense that it will draw a line in the sand because some are going to receive it and others are going to reject it. And we see that in our text. And if the world is upside down, naturally it's going to be resisted. Naturally it's going to be rejected by some. And, and if it's rejected by some and if it's resisted by some, it doesn't reveal that there's any kind of flaw in the message in any way as it was intended to do this. The message is contrary to this world. So the message of Jesus and the message of the gospel is not one that can sort of coexist and, and live and exist parallel to an upside-down world. It's one that confronts the upside-down world in a head-on way. The gospel confronts people with their sin and calls them to surrender their lives fully to Jesus as Lord. 
And it's hard for people to accept that Jesus died for them. Because for people to hear the, the message of that Jesus died and rose again um, for their sins is, would, would require for them to admit that they're a sinner. If they would acknowledge this was taking place, they would be saying, yes, I'm a sinner. And so to hear about Jesus and what he came to do creates a fork in the road when we come into a true encounter with Jesus. When we hear the message of Jesus faithfully proclaimed and faithfully preached, it presents us with this fork in the road of life. Imagine that you are uh, a soldier and you're being trained in your first parachute jump. This is the first time you ever, you've ever jumped from an airplane. Uh, logic dictates that that's a really bad idea, but you know how this works. And so the training officer explains how to use the parachute and if uh, in, the, in the unlikelihood that, uh, in the unlikely scenario that your main chute fails, you are to deploy your reserve chute. And then someone in the back of the class pipes up and they ask this question, how long do I have to deploy my reserve chute? And the training officer responds by saying, the rest of your life. The message of Jesus is one that we need to take heed to. It creates this fork in the road where we've got to choose. And we're not promised with tomorrow. We don't know at what point our rejection of Jesus is going to create real problems for us, real problems of an eternal sort. So we have to be careful as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, as those that um, are seeking to take a message to, to the upside-down world that we do not um, separate ourselves from reaching the upside-down world and from the mission that we are called to in the upside-down world. So we're to be in the world, but not of it. That means we are to have an interesting relationship with the upside-down world. On one hand, there's to be a, a, a bit of a separation, but on the other hand, we're also called to engage. The church, and this would be a horrible travesty, if the church began to retreat into our own bubble and subculture. And in some cases, we've seen that take place. We've seen that happen. And if we do that, we begin to exist for ourselves, and we start to lose sight of the mission that we've been commissioned to be engaged in. And if this happens, we cease being the church that Christ designed us to be. Jesus has commissioned us as his followers, just as he was just as he had commissioned Paul and Silas to reach the, un, uh, the upside-down world. And whether the upside-down world release, realizes it or not, it needs to be rescued. And in most cases, it doesn't realize that. But only Jesus can take the upside-down world and make it right-side up again. Because God has a mission, and that's what it's all about. It's about turning the world right-side up again. And we have been given this great commission, as it's been referred to. We see that in Matthew chapter 28. And, and this is where we come into God's mission. God has a plan for us within his mission to save the world. And we have been given this commission to reach people and make disciples. And this is a big part of how we should understand our purpose. When we are a part of a church, like Collective Church, this is not just a place that we come to to hang out on Sundays. We've said a lot, and I... I'm going to give you, you guys a chance to finish it for me. The church is not a place where, but beautiful. I hope that is caught on the recording. 
That was awesome. The church is not a place where, but a people who. We are a community of people called by God to engage the upside down world on his mission. And so, um, and, and sometimes we, we view the church as a place we go to on Sundays. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a central gathering point of people who think theologically just like us, or we like to just bump into our friends at church, and it's this natural rhythm where every seven days we go to the same place and we hang out. But that's not what the church is about. It's not just to give us a community to be a part of and to gather from time to time, but we have a specific purpose for our existence, and that's to be reaching the world with the gospel, the mission of God. And I love how author Christopher Wright puts it. He says this, It is not so much the case that God has a mission for his church in the world as that God has a church for his mission in the world. Mission was not made for the church. The church was made for mission. So that tells us that the mission of God always existed prior to the church. And we see that in many ways demonstrated, but beautifully demonstrated in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Jesus coming into this world on a mission to die on a cross for us. That was part of the mission of God at work. And now as he ascended into heaven near the close of his earthly ministry, we are commissioned, we see that in Matthew chapter 28, to carry out his work in the world. And as a local church, there are ways that we as collective church are trying to be missionally engaged, even in an organizational way, on behalf of the church as a whole. We've had the incredible opportunity to support six church plants six church plants. Um, in our short existence. We've been around for a year and a half. We've already been able to help six church plants, church, six church plants get going. Uh, two in the United States, two in Europe, and two in Africa. Most of you know this. We have the, we've had the opportunity to work with Clara's Health to, to, to give women all the information they need in order to make real choices when they're facing an unexpected pregnancy. We work with Chrysalis LA to create pathways out of homelessness and poverty um, through employment. We create opportunities for relationships to be built with our neighbors through our neighborhood dinners. And we were hoping that that will have some kind of redemptive effect in our neighborhood. So there's ways that we as a church, organizationally, are engaged missionally. But it's easy to engage mission on the organizational level. It's much more difficult to engage mission on an individual level. And I think that if we're honest, we'll find that the number of of, of people in this room right now, following Jesus is greater than the number of those people in this room that are reaching people for Jesus. The number of Jesus followers in this room, if we can call it that, is probably greater than the number of people in this room that are reaching people for Jesus. The problem with that is that reaching people for Jesus is part of following Jesus. And so if we consider ourselves followers of Jesus, but we've sort of you know, deleted one of the bullet points of what that means, and I'm going to follow Jesus like this, but I'm going to not that, then we have to sort of um, assess our lives and what it means to be a child of God, engaged and commissioned to be involved in God's work in the world. Because here's the challenge. The idea of being commissioned um, there, there is, it's easy for us to intellectually agree with that. We, we, we know about you know, the Great Commission, and we talk about it all the time. We're trying to reach the world, engage God's, 
God's work in the world, the Great Commission, all that kind of stuff. We, we get that. It's easy for us to intellectually agree with, with that. The challenge is, is that we quite easily, without thinking about it, functionally deny it. And we can't do that. But I get it. It's difficult. We get wrapped up in our busy lives and things are going on and, and we lose sight of our mission. We lose sight of our commission. We've talked a lot about being embedded missionaries here on the West Side. And um, it's important that we think that way. And that's why we even refer to it that way. Because it, this is a, an, a mindset that we need to intentionally take on and, and really try to embrace. Because we, if we don't think that way, if we don't think in terms of being embedded missionaries to the West Side, the West Side will only be our home and we'll forget that it's really our mission field. It's really our mission field. It's not just where we live. It is where we live. But we are first embedded missionaries here on the west side and we're to engage God's work to reach the upside down world and another challenge with this is that we appreciate what God has done in our lives we love Jesus we go to church we're part of a new community we go to discipleship group and we're part of our neighborhood dinners whatever else is going on with the church and and we love that um, but we sort of adopt this idea that our faith in Jesus is personal but it's also private, and that's wrong. While it's indeed very a personal thing, it should not be something that is private. And that's why on Easter Sunday, we had baptisms. We had people getting baptized on Easter Sunday because in baptism, what we see is people making a public declaration. They've identified with Jesus, uh, his death, burial, and resurrection. They're sort of uh, they've, they've made that identification. They're expressing that they are followers of Jesus Christ and they're taking steps of obedience because Jesus said to follow him in the waters of baptism. So there's this public proclamation that's being made that's going from personal and overcoming maybe our, our desire to keep it private and it's making it much more public. Now, when we talk about this stuff, I'm not trying to guilt trip anybody. But what I want to do is share my heart for the church and the possibility and the potential that there is for us to engage the West Side. We're doing a bunch of things organizationally. That's good. Could we do, do more? Maybe. I don't know. We can talk about it. But I think the real challenge is what happens on an individual level. We have to think about the opportunities that we have to share the gospel with people. And if we're really taking advantage of the, the people that God has placed in our lives. Just as I mentioned earlier that the West Side is not just where we live, but it's our mission field. The implication being that God has placed you here on his mission and has commissioned you as his missionary. There's a divine purpose in that. In that same kind of a way where there's bigger things at work, God, in the same way, has placed people in your lives, in our lives. And there's people that you know, and you might be thinking of them right now, who don't know Jesus you know what that means? That they're wrapped up and caught up in the upside down world and they don't know Jesus and they're going to spend eternity without him. And, we, and God has placed us in their lives to tell them about his kingdom and how they can be rescued from an upside down world and be brought into a new relationship with Jesus that has incredible purpose, to know God. So I'm not trying to guilt trip anybody but I want us to consider the possibilities. I want us to see the potential. I want us to be stirred up for the opportunity that we have to be missionally engaged 
in this upside down world and in the, in the, in the upside, upside down state of this world, we, there's something that we could actually do. There's something we can do about it. And they have been accused of proclaiming that there's this other king, Jesus. And that is so true. That's the message that we have. That's the message that we get to proclaim, that there is another king, Jesus, because we often tend to live for other kings. There's other things that we serve. There's other things that we worship. There's these things that are in the high places of our lives, and we submit ourselves to the rule of certain things, whatever that might be. One author has described him as the various types of Caesars that we serve, these other kings that we serve. And I want you to be thinking about what is it that you serve? What is the king in your life? Maybe you're someone who doesn't know Jesus, and you, and you could even tell me, oh, I live for this, 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 and this. And if you don't know Jesus, I can tell you right now that those are false kings, and you are caught up in the upside-down world. Maybe you're a Christian, and intellectually, like, yeah, King Jesus. But as you look at it a little bit more closely, you realize that the upside-down world has reached its tentacles into your life, and there's aspects of your life that are not completely submitted to King Jesus. King Jesus is the one that we serve. His rule and reign is what we want to submit to. His rule and reign and the, the personhood of Jesus Christ is what we take our delight in, and it's him that we seek to glorify. It's him that we want to proclaim. It's him that we want to share with people about the relationship that they could have with him. It's this community of people that he has created that can be a force beyond ourselves where it's not just something that is personal, but it's something that is corporate and communal as well, where we can be saved into this community of people who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ to realize uh, uh, a, a purpose in your life that you don't currently have. So there is this other King Jesus, and he calls us to serve him, and he seeks to take the world and turn it right side up, and we get to be his ambassadors. We get to be involved in that. It's not just the work of God that, he, that, that, that is doing that. It is ultimately his work, but he's saying there's a place for you on the bus, so to speak. We get to be a part of him writing the world. Scripture reveals that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And we want the upside-down world to know that. That is the message, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. That is the message that we need to bring to the upside-down world. Let's pray.